So we're look, looking at the story of Joseph. And so this is just the second week. Uh, we'll take about 11, 12 weeks overall to go through this story. And so uh, today, um, I, I know that there were some of you who weren't here last week, but uh, uh, today is the second week, and we're going to be looking at the 37th chapter in the book of Genesis, verses 12 through 36. So I invite you to hear these words. Now his brothers, being Joseph's brothers, went to pasture their, flock, their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. He answered, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring word back to me. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron. And he came to Shechem, and a man found him wandering in the fields. A man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. The man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. And they saw him from a distance, and before he came near to them, they conspired to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we shall say that a wild animal has devoured him, and we shall see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he delivered him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but lay no hands on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand and restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the long robe with sleeves that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels carrying gum, balm, and resin on their way to carry it down to Egypt. And Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brothers and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers agreed. And when some Midianite traders passed by, they drew Joseph up, lifting him out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes. He returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where can I turn? Then they took Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They had the long robe with sleeves taken to their father, and they said, This we have found. See now whether it is your son's robe or not. He recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. A wild animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. And Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins, and he mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and all of his daughters sought to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father bewailed him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God, and let's pray. God, we come to you this beautiful morning, a morning of transitions, a morning, a day when many are graduating, a day when many are looking at what's coming next. And we thank you for that. We thank you for this season and the excitement that it brings. And we pray, God, that we would also be a people gathered here together who are looking, wondering what it is that you are doing next in our lives as well. We pray, Lord, that you would speak to us, that you would open up our ears, our hearts, our minds to you. And I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. So if you weren't here last week and you're not overly familiar with the story of Joseph, let me just give you a brief recap, which is that Joseph is 17 years old. He's clearly the favorite of his father, Jacob, and he has a couple of dreams. And as I said last week, uh, being an annoying brother, he decides that he is going to tell his older siblings what these dreams are. And both of these dreams consist of them bowing down to him. And not surprisingly, uh, his brothers aren't really overly keen or fond of those particular dreams. Even the father, it seems, does not really like the dream all that much. And so the brothers, we are told, hate Joseph. And the father rebukes him. But even though the father rebuked him, we're also told that the father keeps the matter in mind, which is very much like what Mary does after the shepherds have come and visited baby Jesus. He keeps the matter in mind. He can't completely think that it would be impossible that the older brothers would bow to the younger, probably because of the fact that he himself was a younger brother who ended up with the inheritance and with a birthright. And so we left that. That's where we left out last week after the dreams and after the wondering what might become of those dreams. And so this week we're told that the brothers of Joseph are out pasturing his father's flock and they're in Shechem. And I don't know how good your uh, geography is, but if it's not great in that part of the country, I will tell you or world, it's about 60 miles away from where Jacob was. In other words, it's well past shouting distance. And yet, for some reason, Jacob thinks it's a bright idea to have his son, who was clearly hated by his brothers, go and find them some 60 miles away, right? Jacob, as we said last week, may not always be the sharpest tool in the shed, right? We don't know exactly why he did it. Perhaps he had this kind of noble thought that if the, if the brothers could just all be together, that surely they would, it would all work out, right? So Joseph says, here I am. I'm more than happy to go like a good young son always does. And he goes off and he begins to try to find them. Now we have this kind of strange scene there in the middle of this passage where uh, there he is at Shechem. He's kind of wandering the fields and, and all of a sudden he comes upon a stranger, right? And the stranger says, what are you doing? What are you looking for? And, and he's clearly lost. And so the, the stranger says, well, I heard them saying they were, they were going to go to Dothan, which is about another six miles or so away. And so 
Joseph begins to trek to find his brothers in Dothan. And we're told that the brothers saw Joseph from a far distance away. Now, how did the brothers know that it was Joseph who was a far distance away? Probably from that fancy smancy robe. That's exactly right. Yeah. So, so they see him coming, and so they look at him, right? And can you just hear the sarcasm in their voice when they say, oh, here comes this dreamer. And then they have an idea. Why don't we kill him? Exactly right. Sounds like a great idea. Why don't we kill him? And then we'll tell our father um, that he was devoured by a wild animal. And then we can see what becomes of his dreams. So sure enough, they begin to come along. And, and the brother, and then all of a sudden, Reuben has a thought. Reuben says, you know what? Maybe, you know, why should we do it like that? Maybe a better idea would be to simply throw him into a pit. Now, there are lots of these pits that are around the desert area, and the pits are there in hopes that they will collect rainwater. Because, of course, if you're in the desert, what don't you have a lot of? You guys are tired. What don't you have a lot of? There you go, not a lot of water. And so they decide, okay, well, uh, I'm going to make you guys engage today. And so they said, okay, well, you know what? Why don't we throw him into the pit? And so they say, okay. And so uh, now Reuben, of course, had secretly hoped that at some point he would come back and perhaps get Joseph. Uh, And so sure enough, they throw him into the pit. And we're told in Genesis that the pit was empty. And then just to reiterate it, Genesis says there was no water in it. In other words, you weren't going to survive very long in that pit in the desert. And so they're there, and, they, and right after that, of course, they do whatever you do after you've thought about kind of killing your brother. They they eat, right? Because boys are hungry, right? And so there they are, and they're eating their PB&Js and their chips, and they're just kind of gnawing on because throwing someone in a pit, you know, works up a hunger, as you all know. And so, and so there they are, and they're doing that. And all of a sudden, this kind of merchants, right, of caravan begins to kind of come along. And so Judah says, wait, I've got an idea. You know, the guy is our brother. So rather than killing him, you know, why don't we just sell him? You know, and so the group of brothers say, well, you know what? I think that sounds like a great idea. Why don't we do that? And so, and so that's what they do, right? And, and I always imagine, right? I always think about what Joseph must have been thinking, right? As they, as they throw down the ladder or as they reach down the hand and they grab him up, Joseph must have been thinking, oh, thank God. This was just a joke that they were playing, right? All right, guys, that was a good one. You know, you got me. Can I get that coat back? I'll, I'll quiet down about the dreams a little bit if it really bothered you that much. And can't you imagine the excitement as they grab his hand and they pull him up uh, that, that is quickly crushed whenever the chain then goes on that wrist? Right? That momentary blip of joy and hope that maybe the dream is still alive, all of a sudden crushed by the chains of being enslaved. It seems that Reuben wasn't there because when Reuben comes back, he is in anguish. He, he doesn't know what he's going to do, but that anguish, it seems, turns pretty quickly into resourcefulness for all of them as they decide, you know what, we should do what we talked about at first. Let's 
Let's go ahead, let's take this fancy coat, let's put some blood on it, and let's go tell Father that he's been killed. And so they bring it to the Father, and hopefully you heard the way that they presented it. It's this great kind of distancing of themselves. They say as they hand the coat over, is this your son's coat? Not is this our brother's coat, but is this your son's coat? The Father knew that that, of course, is exactly what it was. And immediately he begins to mourn. We're told that he was inconsolable. Nobody could console him. In fact, he ends up saying that I will never be consoled, even unto my death. Now, this is a pretty uh, fascinating little passage, and there's a lot of different ways that you could probably go with it, but we're on a limited amount of time, and so I'm only going to go a couple different places. One of those places is one of the things that's just striking about the whole Joseph story, it seems to me, is how uh, reflective it is of human nature. How reflective it is, again and again, of, uh, of, of poor decisions that we make, and how blind people oftentimes are to the poor decisions that they are making. When we were talking about this story uh, on Wednesday with the staff, one of the staff members said it's almost humorous, really, that Judah can say what he said. You know, you know, guys, he is our brother. We probably shouldn't kill him. We should probably just sell him as a slave, right? And that seemed fine, right? That seemed normal, right? And as we read this story from afar, we think to ourselves, well, how can you say something? Don't you realize how stupid that sounds? And yet, if we're honest, my guess is that most of us can go back, perhaps not that far, into the recent past, if you will, and hear and listen to some of the things that we have said or some of the things that we have done and realize that perhaps we aren't quite as smart as we like to think that we are. In fact, perhaps we are oftentimes more foolish than we want other people to even realize. And while surely my hope is that none of you are thinking about killing a sibling or even, because it's much nicer, selling one of them off into slavery, my guess is that most of us have probably done things that are pretty foolish. Amen? And I would suggest that one of the things that we're also reminded of in this particular part of the passage is the fact that oftentimes some of the dumbest things that we do and the dumbest decisions that we make are when we are a part of a larger group. At least I will tell you from my own personal uh, life that oftentimes as I look back, some of the dumbest things I have done was when I was at a part of a larger group. One of the interesting things, an experiment that I read about uh, not too long ago, talked about the fact that there was a group of, uh, a group, it happened to be men uh, that they were doing this on, but I don't think we should be sexist. This could happen to women as well, I'm sure. And there was a group of men who gathered around and they were, they were shown two cards and you can see what those cards look like right here. Okay, there was the standard card right there on the left, and then there was the test card. And the experiment was, they wanted you to tell them which of the lines on the test card was closest in length to which one of the standard card. Now, as you look at that, even from this far away, which line do you think from the test card is closest to the standard card? 
One, right? That's very easy to see, right? And these were all kind of smart guys. Now, what they didn't uh, tell, the, tell the group is that actually all of the people in the group, except for one, were actors, okay? And so the actors went around. And the actors, I don't remember which one they gave. It was either two or three, but it was the one that was clearly not right, kept giving the wrong answer, right? They all gave the same wrong answer. And so when it finally came around to the last guy who was not the actor... More often than you would want to guess, he went with the wrong answer. Even though, as they went back and talked to him, he felt pretty sure it must be number one. And they said, well, why exactly did you do that if you knew? And he said, well, I figured that there must be something wrong with me. There must be something wrong with my own fact. I must not be seeing it. They must be seeing something I'm doing. And so even though there was a sense he had that maybe something wasn't quite right, he went ahead and went with the wrong answer anyway. And I think one of the things that this does is it reveals in many ways, thanks Betsy, it reveals in many ways the reality of how much, how many of our decisions and the choices we make are actually reflected or shaped by the people we surround ourselves by. And I have a feeling that it's with quite frequency that we don't realize that. And so a couple things as I was thinking about this particular story was a couple things that it tells us when it comes to the people we surround ourselves by and thinking about and making sure that these are the right kinds of people. For one, right, don't have a group of friends who are actors, right, and who are going to lie to you, right? I mean, make sure that you are surrounding yourselves by people who are, who are healthy, right, and who are supportive and encouraging, right? That may have helped out these brothers, right, if they had been a little bit healthier, if there had been a few more healthy folks there who are encouraging and supportive of you. But I think the second thing it also points out, and perhaps we aren't always as aware of this, is it's also important to surround yourself to have at least a couple, if not more folks around you who do not always agree with you. Because one of the things they discovered is that when one of the actors would give, just one of them would give a different answer, that the person who was not the actor had more freedom and ended up saying, okay, I'm gonna go with the one I think is actually the right answer. That in fact, if you surround yourselves only with people who agree with you all the time and who never kind of question that you will never be challenged to kind of think through decisions perhaps a bit more. As I thought about that, I was reminded of uh, when I was in my mid-20s. I wasn't a teenager. I was in my mid-20s, and I was there with my cousin in Kansas City, and, and, and his mom had asked us to move a table that was up on the balcony, uh, um, to move the table down to the bottom, right? It was an outdoor metallic table furniture, right? And so there were some stairs right there, and we could have just gone, and we could have marched down, but that felt like a lot of work for a couple of 20-year-olds. So I said to my cousin, I said, I've got a great idea. Why don't we just, if we lift it off, off and we both drop it at the same time, it will land even and everything will be perfect. And my cousin looked at me and he said, I think that's a great idea. And so we said, great. So we went and sure enough, we leaned over, right? Both of us were just thinking this was perfect and we both let go. Now I would suggest he let go a little bit too early. He would say it was me. It doesn't really matter. The point is, of course, it didn't land perfectly flat, which would have been great. One side landed first and that side was remarkably, land, was remarkably crooked, right? And 
so we spent the next hour and a half, right? We put it on a brick wall and I kept jumping on it to try to even it out. It wouldn't even out. We thought about carrying it back up and trying to drop it again in a different way to see if it worked out. We'd hoped that maybe their parents wouldn't notice. But whenever you put a cup on that table for the next few years, because they kept it there just to make us feel bad, the cup would always just keep going down, right? We completely wasted it. Now, I would suggest to you that if we had had just even one person there who might not be quite so easily agreeable with us, that that one person might have said, you know what, I have a feeling there's a weakness to your logic. And I can't help but wonder if perhaps Reuben, rather than just kind of making one little, you know, uh, making one little suggestion, if he had said, you know what, really, I just think overall we shouldn't do any of this. If maybe even just a couple of brothers would have said, you know what, maybe we should talk about this a little bit more. I'm not sure I'm in agreement with that, that they might not have made a better decision. And quite frankly, in a society in which we have right now, where the silos are getting thicker and thicker, and both sides of every issue, whatever it is, refuses to talk to one another, and all they're doing is talking to everyone who already agrees and becoming more and more certain that what they think must absolutely be the case, that the end result will almost always be that we start making bad decisions. And I would suggest it's, of course, also the case in the church. I mean, part of the reason why I want us to go and love our neighbors is because of the fact that it's important for us to love God and to love neighbor. It's important for us to share the grace and love of Jesus. But something else that happens is when you get out there, then you are forced to be around people who don't agree with you. One of the problems I have seen in churches that silo themselves into churches where everybody believes exactly the same thing and where they isolate themselves from the society around them is that they end up making bad decisions. They end up coming up with about a thousand different things that they think these are essential to what it means to follow Jesus. And when you get out and you start being challenged and you have to wrestle with things, you don't completely succumb to whatever the society around you is thinking, but it does help you to narrow down some of the most essential parts of what it means to be a Christian. We make better decisions, not when we only surround ourselves with people who agree with us, but when we have some people who disagree with us that challenge us. And we may end up making the same decision and having the same understanding of things, but we will at least be more grounded and we will be forced to ask ourselves, is this really the best way to go? But it seems to me that not only do we have here this image of what groupthink can do, but the other part of this passage that really spoke to me this week as I was reflecting on it is, is the image of the pit. The dark, dry, lonely pit. Now, Joseph... For whatever you think of Joseph, whether or not you think he was just annoying, whether or not you think he was a braggart, whatever it is, Joseph, surely, I would believe most of us could agree, did not deserve to be thrown in a pit and left to die. And one of the things that I always wonder that's a little frustrating to me about Genesis is that it doesn't tell us what Joseph was doing as he's in that pit. Right? What is, he, what is he saying? What is he thinking? Is, is he screaming? Is he, is he crying out for help? Is he stoic? Is he just crying? Is he, is he believing that the dream is still alive? Or is he wondering whether or not God has given up on the dream? Is he, is he questioning? Is he confused? Is he angry even at God? And we don't know the answer to that because Genesis doesn't give it to us. But what 
it does is it gives us a blank canvas. In other words, it allows us to put ourselves into the position of Joseph in the pit. Because most of us have had a time when we've been in a dark and lonely pit, oftentimes not of our own doing. And we know how we act in those moments. One of the most difficult parts of being a pastor, I would say, for me at least, are those moments when I either get a phone call or when someone comes into my office and they're wrestling with something that has happened to them. Something that they haven't done and they don't understand why is this pit so dark and why in the world would God have done something like this? Why would God allow this? And I know what I want to do, which is I want to give them a clear, simple, easy ladder that they can just climb up on that would explain everything. And before you know it, they'd get up out of the pit and everything would be great. But the reality is that more often than not, I cannot give them those answers that they are desperately seeking. And it is incredibly frustrating. One of the things, though, that I do do is I tell them about the Psalms of Lament. About the reality that in the Psalms, in our very scripture, we have passage that speaks that psalmists are complaining, they're questioning, they're wondering, they're hurting, they're asking God, where are you? Why have you left? Are you still there? Do you still care about me? And that's remarkably helpful, I think, oftentimes, because one of the things that I see people doing is that not only do they feel bad that they're in the pit, but then they feel bad and guilty that they're questioning and that they're angry. And all that does is make the pit even deeper and darker. And the other thing, of course, that you can do is, is you can look back, and oftentimes this is not what I tell people right then, but you can look back and you can, you can oftentimes, you can see, okay, well, here are the places that, I've, that I grew because of this. This is how my empathy for others, my, this is how I, I understand more about things. Oh, now I understand why I was ever in that pit, why God allowed it. And, and that can be also very helpful. But I gotta tell you that the older I get, the more I also begin to understand that there are some of those questions and some of that confusion and some of those places in the pit that we might never understand, that we may never know the answer to. I don't usually tell people that at the beginning, and, and I certainly think, as I said, you have to have time to get angry. You have to have time to question and to be confused. You have to have time to be able to look back and say, well, here are some of the good things, but I want you to know also that there are times when those answers simply will not come. When I think about questions I have about my parents' divorce that I've shared to you all before, when I, when I think about the miscarriage that we suffered as I've talked to you all about before, when I think about people who have come in who have talked about the abuse that they have received or the, the death of loved ones that much too young, I realize that there will not always be answers for that that any of us can come up with. And that's not easy for people who like answers or like someone to blame. Part of the journey of faith that many of us have to endure is the fact that at some point in the midst of that, we have to decide 
whether or not we have the faith to continue to believe that God still loves us and cares for us and has not forgotten about us, even when all of the questions are not answered. In fact, in many ways, I would say that's actually living into the final verse of this passage. I hope you heard it. The final verse of this passage, while Jacob is in the pit of grief, while the brothers are in the grief of their lying and of the treatment of their brother, Genesis says this key word, meanwhile. Meanwhile, Joseph was sold to Potiphar, chief guard of the Pharaoh. Meanwhile, even though the father is in grief and is in confusion and is in pain, meanwhile, God is still at work. Meanwhile, even though the brothers have royally screwed up, God is still alive. Meanwhile, even though Joseph is enchained to Potiphar, the meanwhile, the dream is still in play. Meanwhile, no matter how many questions they have, no matter how many struggle there is, no matter how much confusion is all around, meanwhile, God is still God. This is exactly what Hebrews 11.1 1 says about faith. So often we want faith to be this certainty, and it was never called to be a certainty. Hebrews 11.1, 1, right? We've shared this before. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So that when you are in that pit and you are desperate and those questions are not being answered and you have been wondering about them again and again and again, the question that then eventually comes to all of us is do we trust in the meanwhile of God? Do we trust in the meanwhile that says, though we do not see and we may never see on this side of eternity, God still is with us and is for us? Can we trust in the meanwhile of God? It's human nature that we see in this particular part of the story of Joseph forces us to ask the question, do we believe even, even when we make the most foolish of mistakes? Meanwhile, God is still there. And that even when we are in the darkest of pits with questions all around us, do we believe in the meanwhile that God is still for us and with us? Because if we can believe in the meanwhile of God, and we can continue to move forward despite the questions that are unanswered, despite the confusion that still may be around. Wherever you are right now, know that the meanwhile of God is with you, that God is not dead, that the dream is still alive. Amen.